Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I hope you enjoyed the silence and didn't miss us too much. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, my uh, travels were rather extensive. We couldn't uh, broadcast while I was out of the country because I was constantly on the move. Constantly on the move because you're trying to avoid sniper fire? I'm confident at any one time there are at least three men trying to kill you. We are back and having come back immediately into silly season, that period of the year when everyone is desperately looking for news and no one really has any idea what to talk about, but by God they'll find something. We've decided to come back with a bang and talk about a topic <laughs> that I'm not actually sure we've talked about before at all, Michael. Climate change. A topic designed for sensible, well-meaning people to tell you things that are absolutely true and not the outpouring of feverish and paranoid delusions. I'm sure, Michael, when you look at all of the conversations you've had about climate change before, they're all incredibly informed and reasonable and balanced. You'd say that's true, wouldn't you? I would say it's balanced, friendly, informative. At the end of the day, people shake hands and say, well, that's been a friendly and informative chat. I'm leaving here a better person and I feel better equipped to face into the realities of how to deal with the ever-evolving issue around climate change. And everybody knows what's true, and everybody knows what's false, and we all know what the facts are. Yes, Gary, that's very much my experience. Absolutely. I was terrified, Michael, that you might say that actually it's more akin to some sort of uh, naked, crazed, gladiatorial fight between people who have no idea what they're talking about, on both sides of the argument, but have somehow convinced themselves that they have managed, without ever reading a scientific paper or really thinking about the idea at all, that they have managed to synthesize human experience on what is probably the most complicated area of current inquiry, at least in the physical sciences, uh, that they've managed to synthesize this into a simple slogan that can be screamed at your opponent. Well, no, I, I think the image that I actually do have is much more akin to somebody going into a room which is completely dark with a heavy automatic weapon and deciding to shoot it off on the basis that this is the safest way to behave, even though you have a fairly strong belief that there are other people in the room. So let's do this then. It's one of those interesting things when you leave a country and then come back into it, you notice things that you didn't notice before. And while I was somewhat aware of it, Irish media is having not a great time in relation to climate change. It's been a very wet. Uh, it's been a very wet July, and that's upset a lot of people. Yes, I mean, I was. I you know, I grew up being told, Michael, that there's a difference between climate and weather. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been noted before that that difference only exists so long as it cannot be used for political points. But we very rarely talk about climate change on this show. I think for a very simple reason. I don't really know enough about the science of climate change to comment on it. So I don't comment on it because I'm not terribly informed about it. I say that in the same sense that I mean that nearly everyone who's talking about climate change is uninformed about it. They've just got some ideas. Sorry, I, was just, I, I, I have talked to physicists who work, who have worked in the area they're closer to it, and they tell me that it is incredibly difficult and complex and strange and hard. And that the number of people that can competently talk about science, climate uh, in the world is really not very, very many at all. I think there are other things you can talk about, but though, Gary, I mean, even if whatever position you took about what the anthropogenic ch climate change, the rate, blah, 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 you, we could uh, 
you can't, you can't talk about the responses, or at least the trade-offs. And the fact that we don't talk about the trade-offs or quantify the trade-offs enough. But sorry, go on. No, that, that was rather my point. I don't talk about climate change, the science of it, because I'm not qualified to talk about the science of it. I don't really understand it. And I, therefore, have no ability to talk about it. What I am qualified to talk about, however, is the policy decisions that are being suggested in order to deal with climate change. Those I am qualified to deal with. And I have noted, Michael, consistently, the problem that a lot of the environmentalist movement has is that regardless of whether or not their ideas are correct based on the science of climate change, their policy suggestions tend to be monumentally stupid in that you get a lot of, let's take the Green Party. The Green movements all over Europe are at the front of talking to people about climate change. They make it an issue of public concern. But they're also massively anti-nuclear, which is the cleanest source of reliable energy known to mankind. So on one hand, they raise a lot of public awareness about climate change. On the other, they tend to heavily lobby against something that could help solve a lot of the energy issues and a lot of the emission issues that they talk about in the same way they are massively against genetically modified crops. Despite the fact that genetically modified crops, if properly developed, could heavily cut down on the requirements of farmers to use you know, nitrates, to use a whole host of things which we are told are incredibly damaging. So you get this weird sort of, this is the issue, it's existential, but no, we don't want to compromise on anything that we don't like. We are effectively Luddites. On the GMO, it's not just the climate stuff. I mean, the, yes, they could reduce the amount of uh, carbon. Uh, the fossil fuels that are used that go into the production of all sorts of fertilizers, and it also could use, reduce things like pesticides and herbicides, which we are all agree are very bad and bad for biodiversity, but also children going blind, Gary. And let's not forget the children going blind. Well, I mean, Michael, it's very clear they don't care about that, so why should we? Yeah, I know we do tend to bag on about the little children going blind because we think it's a bad thing, but that apparently puts us in some kind of weird anti-environmentalist and position because it involves uh, GMOs. But, you know, I'm there and I think we should do the thing that helps the children not go blind. I'm taking that radical far out on the branch position there. Anyway, just wanted to get that one in. I suppose in the interest of just full disclosure, I should explain what my position on climate change broadly is. When I was younger, I looked at what was being said. And then I looked at what I thought the policy reaction of certain countries would be to that. And I came to the conclusion that the truth of, or the, the balance of the science really didn't matter for this reason. The proposals that were being put forward to deal with this and the, the level of those proposals was clearly unworkable without a technological solution. For this reason, the poorest countries in the world, the countries that are still industrializing, are never going to accept that the first world got to become exceptionally wealthy using the easy availability of energy and they don't get to do that. So it was clear, and this was earlier on, um, so it was clear that China and India, for instance, were not going to buy into these things. They were going to rapidly industrialize to the greatest extent possible. Now, that may lead to a technological solution. I mean, for instance, China may decide to just paint 
however much of the country, uh, uh, pure white to reflect heat or geoengineering or things like that. But that to me seems like the only workable solution here, just based on how countries are actually going to react to that. So, and just, I want to say, sorry, list, I think the listeners should know there that when he, Gary says paint the country white, that is actually a thing. There is a new tech paint out there which may save the planet. So he's not just talking about Chinese going out and painting the country white for the sake of it. There is actually a new thing now which says that if we all paint half the country, half the place white, we may save the planet. Sorry, go on, Gary. No, so I mean, in general, I believe in responsible stewardship of the land. But in relation to climate change, my view for quite a long period of time has been that the steps that are required will not be taken. And so whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And technological progress is the best hedge against actually any of that any of those things negatively impacting on human life. So, for instance, a climate that becomes much more, how should we say, Michael, uh, volatile can be dealt with with increased technological progress and uh, strengthening communities to deal with uh, extreme weather patterns, things like that, things that have been shown to work. Um, and that's not a moral view on the things. That's just what I think practically is going to happen. Where do you stand on this, Mike? I don't think I've ever actually asked you. I I would be surprised if human beings did not have some effect on the climate of the planet, you know? And if for a hundred and whatever years we were burning lots of fossil fuels, and I, again, I would be surprised if we did not have some effect on the planet. That would seem to me strange. What that effect is, what the long term is, I haven't a clue. Climate change. I absolutely believe in climate change because my understanding is the climate has always changed. However, as a, a reasonably intelligent layperson, the one I found, Gary, that it is impossible for me, without spending an inordinate amount of time doing something, to get any kind of sense of security about information. You know, it's one of those fields where people will come along and tell you with absolute confidence and belief a whole set of facts. And you know these people and you don't, think that they're dishonest so you think okay these must be facts and then you meet somebody else who has an exact opposite set of facts and then you go on the internet and you try and establish which fact and it's it's just you're talking about this recent discourse right i don't know did you come across this that the te- you know, that they were talking about temperatures in europe and that europe was boiling and europe was experiencing unprecedented temperatures and then I had other people telling me, ah, but what actually is happening is that previously they used to take ground temperatures and now they're taking air temperatures, or previously they took air temperatures and now they're taking ground temperatures. And one was lower and this one is higher, and that's why it's producing these. And then other people say, no, no, that's not true at all. And I go on, I try and find out, and I don't know. I just have no clue what is true, what the science is. I pick a few people that seem to me to be sensible and I, I, I kind of follow them. I just, I, my question is at this stage, I don't know what the hell is happening. Can we look at what the cost? Okay, you're going to do that. That's going to cost 1.4 trillion. What will it achieve? What are the benefits? And if we were to spend less money, could we achieve the same outcomes? And in the meantime, people will get on with technological solutions. And I'm confident that sometime in the next X number of years, if people are allowed, they will come to a technological solution to the problem. 
There is an increasing segment of the environmental activist lobby which has explicitly said we do not want techno solutions. A lot of the, particularly the deep green movement, tends to uh, view humanity in, in quite a negative, yes, sometimes existentially negative sense. They don't want these things. They, also, there's a lot of kind of weird pagan mysticism towards the planet in those. Yeah, there's the the whole Gaia thing, uh, a, a number that is not. I mean, the thing about this, Gary, you should say as well, we're not talking about seven or eight people living in Oregon. We're talking about increasingly large numbers of people. I mean, it's still a minority interest, but increasingly large numbers of people who are also influential. I mean, Greta Thunberg, I don't know if her moment has passed or if it is yet truly to come, but <clears throat> it seems to me bizarre that people were paying so much attention to a child talking about policy solutions which are complex to a scientific problem which is incredibly complex. And people were listening, sitting down and at the feet of this child. That seemed to me to be a, a weird moment in, in history. But Greta and her, uh, her mates, I mean, the number they have is 500 million, that we need to get the population, the human population, down to around 500 million. That's a figure you hear quite, quite, quite a bit. At the moment, there are, what, 8, 9 billion of us? Well, I suppose, Michael, if you want the population of the planet to, to decrease by that amount, you know, start as you mean to go ahead. Mass suicides? Yeah, I mean, I don't trust people who tell me, well, we've got to let the population fall, unless they're telling it to me through a video which is being shown at their funeral. I mean, everyone else has got to die is not a... Uh, it's just, it's like a black metal band, Michael, telling me that you should commit murder and worship Satan. You're like, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of murder going on in the black metal community. There are some <laughs> <yeah>. high-profile instances. <laughs> You're taking an Aristotelian approach, that you tell me what you are by what you do, but not by what you say. So, yeah, I, I think that's a not, not, not that I would, of course, encourage anyone to, to invade, engage in self-destruction. But if you're principal policy is destruction of the, the species. Well, uh, yeah, I think it, it would be more consistent to start with oneself. I think part of the problem here as well is that there is... Climate change has been caught up in, in the misinformation and disinformation fight in that there are a large amount of people who believe that you know, climate change denial is this massive issue. With climate change denial being defined largely as whatever is useful in that moment, ranging from it is denial if you say uh, the climate is not changing at all, to it's denial if you say the climate is not cha changing, but it's not due to human impact, or to, at this point, the climate is changing, but the impacts will not be as apocalyptic as is being talked about. But Gary, do you not have a problem, well, not a problem, but do you not find it slightly uncomfortable, the very that phrase, denial? Is there not like a, a, a kind of a 16th century reformation feel to that language well there is there is one thing i do find quite funny about this and this is the talk it is the talk of denial and refusal to accept the science and and, and that people are anti-science because when someone says that something to me is anti-science what they're saying is that it runs it, it, it rejects the scientific method and the problem yes. there is the scientific method holds sacred the idea that you can always be wrong yeah that 
new science can come out and show that you were wrong, regardless of how strongly it was previously supported or how deeply your conviction in it was. So if you're talking to me about people who are anti-science, the only people who are anti-science are people who reject the idea that they could ever, under any circumstance, be wrong. And that, at this point, is a lot of the climate activists. I will say on, on one other thing, which I am qualified to talk about, media reporting on climate change is like nothing else. You can say things about climate change, you can write things, and they will be allowed. And if you were to do it on any, any other issue, it would be seen as deeply unethical, factually dubious, and just generally wrong. I mean, we have RTE has agreements with activist organizations that are looking to shape coverage about climate change and have all of these policies that people should never speak negatively about climate change, should not platform certain people. Or Jennifer O'Connell was in the Irish Times um, during the week, uh, I think on Saturday actually, and said, climate science is the most accurate of the sciences, <laughs> which is just a factually wrong statement. It's not factually wrong, Gary. Yeah, well, it is factually wrong, but it's also just, it's silly on the, on the face of it. It's just, God almighty. There is a certain genre of media piece on climate. And when I read them, the first thought in my mind is that the author of this wrote it naked in a dark room while masturbating. <laughs> you know, you ever read those stories and they're all about like how the world is going to end and mass yeah, extinction yeah, events and how yeah, humans are... Yeah. And there's a little bit of a kind of like nearly like, you know, a thrill to it you can kind of sense from the author that this is not entirely a bad thing. They may be self-pleasuring or they may indeed have a little sturdy flail with which they are beating themselves. The end result of the process being the same. Yes, there is... A, a weird sense of sort of sadomasochistic flagellation. Actually, it's funny you should say, I, I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but it's something that stuck in my head for years. Was, when I was a kid, there was a, it was a children's teen drama thing was on BBC. And it was a kind of, I don't know, it was a, a kind of a Brave New World dystopia vibe to it. And there were these teenagers who lived in this sort of hedonistic, politically disengaged world. And they were watching video clips of people protesting from the from the old days, from the 20th century. And they were protesting about, I don't know, poverty or war or climate change. And they were discussing this. And the phrase they used was that the scientists just had, just had understood this was a form of mental illness called psychomasochism. And it stuck with me as a phrase. I think it was actually a very good phrase, psychomasochism. And I think that we see a lot of psychomasochism uh, in this and there is that subtext of oh yeah god it's awful isn't it awful but i love us really you know slightly being in this sense the gaia is the dominatrix but yeah they do say they, they get very sweaty about it i mean there's a story a couple of years ago which got reported pretty much on no mainstream media and it was a speech i or yeah a speech that one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion was giving, I believe, to school children. Grip got a copy of it, and we didn't cover it because we thought it was so out there that there was no way it was real. Oh, and then yes. we ended up getting scooped by the spectator yeah. who was able to show it was. And he had he he wrote this thing, and he was saying that the reality of climate change is seeing your mother raped on the kitchen table 
by roving bands of uh, of criminal men, basically saying there will be a full societal breakdown, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, your mother is going to be raped on a kitchen table. Now, I can't think of any other area where if one of its major activists came out and said that, everyone would just kind of go, well, their heart is in the right place. <laughs> I think it might also be news. But there is this sort of general acceptance in the media and large segments of politics that these people might be factually incorrect, but are, you know, on the specifics, Michael, but are directionally correct. Like they're a little over exuberant, but everyone agrees this is a, you know, a problem. But that's normal. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not make, I'm not trying to make some sort of desperate political point here, but that is ultimately the way these things are reported. I, it annoys some of our friends on the, the, the left who absolutely, now let, I mean, to be very clear, are very happy that everything connected with national socialism should be abjured and should be condemned. It's awful. But do say, well, why is it okay to be a Stalinist? Or why is it okay to be a communist? When look at what Mao did, look at what Stalin did. And the fact is that in the press, there is always this element that there is an irredeemable quality about the motivation of the Nazis. But that the communists... Okay, maybe they got things wrong. Maybe the practical outcomes weren't great, but you know their heart was in the right place, and that is why we should be very, very worried and very careful about people's heart is in the right place because we know how horribly, horribly wrong it can go. But the media is still stuck. There's a that's there's a strange teenage quality at times to the way the media on well. We talk about it as if it was a single organic mass. Of course, it's not. But generally, there's a slightly teenage thing about, ah, well, you know, but they're trying to do a good thing. Now, I would question whether or not, in fact, a lot of these people are indeed trying to do a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, they get away with a hell of a lot because their motivation is pure. Their hearts are pure. I mean, I was reading a John Gibbons piece in the Business Post over the weekend, and and he was talking about uh, a marine heat wave, Michael. And here's what he said. The world's oceans are accumulating the equivalent of the energy of seven Hiroshima bombs per second. That's around 220 million Hiroshimas in excess energy each year. Now, I'm just going to put this gently forward. Using the one of the bombs that hit Hiroshima as your unit of measurement is probably uncalled for. And if you are going to use it, perhaps it might be a little bit better to learn the name of the bombs. You know, there's only two. They both have quite distinct names. Well, I, I, I think Oppenheimer has probably sort of made Hiroshima, has made the atomic bomb newly sexy and fashionable. You know, I mean, let's face it, for a long time it was just, you know, Fairly small bomb, fairly small explosion in the context of the far better things we can do now since we invented neutron bombs and much more powerful nuclear weapons. But the movie has probably made it more fashionable and therefore... How many, sorry, how many Hiroshima's in a year? I believe it was um, 220 million Hiroshima's. It doesn't matter the fact that we don't actually understand what that means. All we know is, oh my God, 220. It said million and it said Hiroshima... And that means we're all going to die. I don't really understand it in between, but I know that means we're all going to die. For all that it purports to be an exact measurement, I'm not sure it actually means anything. 
But it's just provocative. It gets people going. But he uh, he says, Mike goes on to say that our tragic failure to act commits us to a near future of mass migration, famine, economic collapse, violence and political and social breakdown. We have choices, although years of delay mean all the easy options are long gone. We now have to choose between wrenching austerity in order to drastically cut emissions or carrying on regardless and letting the sixth mass extinction run its course. He does say, Michael, then, for once, let's be brutally honest, we've already chosen, haven't we? Which does raise the spectre that John Gibbons is now finished, having completed his work entirely. <laughs> He's not going back to the home planet. No, the thing about that is, he may not be wrong, because... Did you see the the new president of the UN climate body has said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but not that much really, if the temperature of the planet increases by one and a half degrees centigrade, it's not the world won't end, which I think has shocked a lot of people. George Carroll had a great routine in, I think, the 80s about uh, saying the planet is going to be destroyed, which the punchline was, people might be fucked, but the planet yeah. is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The thing... The thing there, I mean, the pl- is that people are actually incredibly resilient. What you would need to have an actual extinction level event for humanity is far beyond anything these people are projecting, anything anyone serious is projecting. Partially for the reason that like, humans are basically like limpets. We just refuse to die. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean it's pleasant, but this whole everyone will die thing is is a little bit out there. And also, Michael, when you read something like that, you can kind of like, you kind of get a feeling of like, you know, the heaving lungs and the the sweat covered body of John Gibbons in a way, in a way you probably don't want to imagine. I, I really don't. I want to move away from that very quickly indeed. The other thing that strikes me about this is now what has all has always slightly, all this is going to be often going to be horrible. But at the same, I, I'm sure I was taught at different in geography or in in those books I was given to read when I was in my bed sick and I was just about dinosaurs, that there have been times in the history of the planet when the planet had developed life, that the planet was quite a quite a deal warmer than it is now, and it was just sort of covered. I mean, flourishing and lots of jungles and dinosaurs in the sky and dinosaurs in the sea and dinosaurs all over the gaff just being sort of very eco-diverse and it was absolutely tremendous and great fun. So I, if, I don't know, is it, are we just going to boil this time? Why, why was it that, that was, I mean, there were times when there was a very little ice on the face of the earth, was it? And, and the, even recently with the medieval warm period. Now, on the other hand, I know that we actually don't have temperatures from these places because there weren't people going around with mercury thermometers or taking down accurate details. So that's another point of the d- debates is the fact that we don't actually have temperatures from historical. We only have guesstimates or estimates. And again, some people say, well, no, we can do this science with great accuracy because we can look at this. And I say, okay, that's cool because science can do cool things. And they other people say, no, you can't. So I don't know. But yes, it's going. But I think the problem, like, sorry, I think what they would say, Gary, is not that we're going to go extinct necessarily, although maybe we will, but rather that lots of other animals will go extinct and we will have far less biodiversity. Well, I, I think that's uh, I think that's a Mott and Bailey argument. Uh, for those who are unaware, Mott and Bailey is a defensive structure where one is the outer layer and, and one is the inner layer. And it refers to a style of argumentation where you make a very extreme point, and then if you're if you're not pushed back on, you keep going. And if you are pushed back on, you fall back to a much more defendable position. 
So it's a, it's a rhetorical tactic, basically. So you said there, Michael, about um, loss of diversity. But in the John Gibbons piece, he, he quotes a professor, Professor James Hansen, uh, who says that we are damned fools for ignoring decades of repeated warnings that this crisis left unchecked would destroy human civilization and much of the natural world. And that is a very common kind of positioning to start with, no, this will actually destroy humanity. And then if you push back by pointing out that that's not going to happen, then it gets back to, oh, well, the loss of biodiversity will be terrible. But it's very much, we are going to say what we can get away with saying. Yeah. And because we are on the right side of things and the sociology is in our favor, we can say literally anything we want. So we can use Hiroshima, for instance, as a unit of measurement, or we can campaign against nuclear, or we can do whatever we want because like, who's going to stop us? Um, I do, I will, I will credit Mr. Gibbons for accepting that the policies he's putting forward would mean wrenching austerity because he's right. When we look at the fall in emissions in countries during the COVID pandemic, when massive amounts of industries were just gone, uh, we saw private travel cut down to its absolutely, uh, to absolutely the bone. Emissions fell nowhere near what we'd actually need to hit our climate um, targets, which is to say, Michael, we either need to fundamentally change how we're doing things to an extent that doesn't seem possible based on what we have, or we need technological progress to uh, make things incredibly more efficient. Yeah, I, I think you could synthesize the position as this. In Europe, we are going to, if we follow the direction, the injunctions to achieve, that are necessary to achieve net zero. We are going to beggar ourselves. Now, even on the best guesstimates of what that would achieve, it will achieve almost nothing unless China and India, for example, do pretty well the same thing. And China and India are not doing the same thing and will not do the same thing. And if you look at, I mean, there's lots sorts of fun games you can play with the numbers, but like one of them is if you look at the 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 the, the carbon uh, CO two emissions or uh, or the more generally the greenhouse emissions produced in the first in three months by only the new coal powered fire stations that China is building uh, you can approximate what the the total emissions in one year from all of Germany or some some such figure I mean the people doing this stuff on the internet you can find it. fact is People will then say, Gary, and how do you, I mean, seriously, how do you react to this? But you say, yes, that might be true, but we have to show leadership. We have to do our part or else nobody will follow. So if we do it, then people will get on board. The triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> the countries which most need to do things on this, and actually America is, is, is doing incredibly good on some of these metrics, but when you look at the world's major major polluters, who are, by the way, only classed as major polluters because of the way we actually measure emissions, if we measured emissions in the way I think we should, which is not measuring them uh, as attributed to where they are produced, but rather where they are consumed, which would take a lot of the pressure off China because a lot of what they make is not for Chinese consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, we would, I think, Michael, have a slightly more informed conversation, but who am I to know that? I think the countries that need to do things on this if we actually want to see substantial emissions have many incentives to go through 
extremely rapid industrialization, followed by a pullback into investments in renewables, nuclear energy, things like that, as living standards rise. Yeah. Uh, sorry, wealth rises and uh, residents in those areas demand increased living standards. Some of what we've seen with China, where they are now investing massively into renewable energies, because it turns out once you hit a, a certain wealth level, uh, people like to be able to breathe the air without it corroding uh, anything inside them. And I imagine India will go through a process like that as well, which is to say that if there's technological solutions, they might actually be actionable. But what these people are calling for is not... Also, often seems to be a very open-ended call for things to happen, Michael. Like, I have seen a lot of the policy changes that these people want, and they are, at the same time, immensely difficult, either politically or socially or just generally, uh, but also massively under what would actually be needed if these people want to hit the reductions that they say they want to hit because there's simply too many people doing too many things and cutting a lot of people off from let's say uh air travel is not going to actually solve anything if anybody's interested they can look at some of the the, the, the stuff that's been done on the paris accord and the agreement that the paris accord is we say going to cost one and a half trillion and it's that's a lot of money, by the way, Gary. I, in case you're wondering, I, I can assure you of that. Technically, from an economist's point of view, one and a half trillion of anything, but one and a half trillion, say, dollars is a lot of money. And that will, you know, impact on people's lives. And if, even if they do all of that, then the estimated reduction in, is like somewhere like 0.9%, 0.9 degrees. So it's, and then if you take out the effects of, say, East Asia. And East Asia, and China, for example, had previously committed to certain kinds of targets by 2030. Those targets seem to have been moved. I would like all for this discussion. The only thing I, I would, I, I, I would ask, which I think is reasonable, not that we have, we come to a dis definitive decision whether or not, because I'm sure there are people listening to this, Gary, who are absolutely convinced that the discussion around climate change is completely just one big organized nonsense by the elites in order to get us to live in a certain kind of way or to change our behavior and it's all absolute poppycock now i don't believe that but i'm sure there are people listening that do all i would ask is that for policymakers is that are and are more to the point the press is that you say okay we're going to do this, and we want to do this. And rather than just say, oh, well, we're all going to drive electric cars, and it'll be fantastic, isn't it brilliant? We have electric cars now. Without, and, trade, and we're going to generate all this energy from wind and, and free. It's free. The, the wind is free. Isn't it fantastic? Without actually setting down the fact on the other side of the ledger that there are going to be costs. What this cost? Because that's just life. Even in really good stuff, you're going to have trade-offs. And what we have, Gary, in essence here, I think in this discussion, is a complete lack of a discussion of what the trade-offs are, the concrete, real trade-offs needed to achieve this. Rather than saying it's going to be hard, it's going to be tough, yeah, but we're going to do it. I mean, that's like you walking around some peninsula in Kerry. It's going to be hard, it's going to be tough. But you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be really satisfying and going to have a lovely time. 
because you know, we're going on an adventure holiday. I think we need explicit and then let people make their minds up. Now we're just being just, it's just nothing but sloganeering and maybe a purpose in life for those of us who come from those generations for whom Christianity has lost its imaginative or mythologic, mythopoetic power to explain our role in the universe. And now this has given an end purpose, a telos to people. But a number would be good on both sides of the ledger. Okay, we're going to do all these lovely things with electric cars and net zero, and it's going to cost us this. And that means we won't be able to do this and this and this. And also people will die in poor countries. People won't die in Ireland. Or very many people won't die because we're a very rich country. So we can take some of this stuff. But poor countries, it won't be quite the same. Anyway, Gary, I think we've probably beaten that particular horse, not to death, but you know, to a point where it's rather sore and we can move on. Very good. We shall, we, we, I'm, I'm imagining we'll be back on Sunday now. The, the, the conference season has closed, although the autumn season of new stuff has, is about to open, so. But for the time being, we will be in the country. I'm always in the country. Almost always, anyway. No, I believe we will be here for the foreseeable future which I am very happy about, Michael. I spent a solid month eating conference and buffet food. (laughs) Standing around with a cup in one hand and a biscuit in the other, smiling at people. Yeah, it's great fun. It's difficult to complain about this because you get the sort of, oh, did you, all of your travel was bad, wasn't it? No, it was quite good. But I did an entire month. I think I was in the country for like six days in the last five weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm just tired of it, Michael. I'm just tired. I just want to be at home and do nothing and read about how we're all going to die. And how Helen McEntee is actually a very good minister, really. Because you, sometimes you need a laugh, Gary. You do. You need a laugh. Actually, some of the um, some of the climate people actually remind me of people who get really into post-apocalyptic uh, fiction. Yeah, and you get this kind of you know you get this some of them you get this feeling that they actually quite like it. Like <laughs> they don't realise that they would be killed nearly immediately or be such an immense threat to others that they would be put down like a feral dog. Definitely, uh, quite sensibly. <laughs> but you do get this that when they say you know when they read certain things, there is a yearning in their heart for it. I think the line between the the climate apocalypse guys. And you know those guys who live in the mountains in Oregon or Montana? I I think there's a commonality, a, a cousinhood there. Because I think in their little heads, they think, oh, well, we'll survive. Because I've got all my jarred, my jarred tomatoes I had from my organic uh, plot last year, so we'll be fine. Some of them, I think, believe that humanity should be punished as well. Yeah, I, people talk about it being a religion. I'm not, which I, I, I understand why... I think there are definitely religious elements to it. But I think it's inevitable because I think there's a religious element. Politics is, in a sense, a subset of religious activity. But there is that sense that we are, we have been bad. We have been very bad and now we must do penance. And, you know, it, it can't be from giving, giving up chocolate right down to the hair shirt and the flagellation. And I think sometimes it's the hair shirt and the flagellation because that's the most fun, really. 
What was the quote about, uh, you mentioned Oppenheimer before, I think it was von Neumann who said, uh, in response to someone asking him about Oppenheimer and his apparent guilt, that um, sometimes one confesses to a sin in order to take credit for it. Yes, that is. <laughs> Definitely. We'll anyway. be back next week. Bye-bye.